Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to Exodus chapter 20. And this this evening we're continuing our uh, series on the Ten Commandments, and we're focusing on verse 13 this evening, but we'll uh, begin verse 1 uh, to set the context. Exodus chapter 20, and beginning at verse 1. And you'll find this on page 61 in the church Bibles. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. One uh, Christian writer and theologian uh, was reflecting on an experience that he had with a Jewish rabbi. Uh, If you remember this morning during our discussion period, we were talking about the Pharisees. And in our discussion, I made the point that the Pharisees, uh, their movement really ended uh, with the destruction of the temple. Uh, And in one sense, that's true. But as was being pointed out, uh, we can also see the the Pharisees uh, were very instrumental and still had an influence past the destruction of the temple in terms of passing on their oral teachings and uh, creating their schools, which would ultimately uh, become uh, the seeds for what would be Orthodox Judaism today. But as we were discussing the Pharisees, uh, we were highlighting something of the spirit of the Pharisees. Uh, and of obeying the law. And in this interaction between a Christian and a Jewish rabbi, the Jewish rabbi said, you know, one of the great differences between our two faiths is is that this idea that by thinking or by desiring something, you're actually committing a sin. Whereas for us, you have to physically commit the act for it to be sin. Otherwise, He said with a chuckle, we'd be sinning all the time. And the Christian responded by saying, we are. That's the whole point. 
as we're coming to look at the Ten Commandments, we're not looking at them as a checklist that we are fulfilling in order to make ourselves right with God. What we are doing is we are seeing how the law searches our hearts. That the law doesn't just deal with the outward actions that you do, but it goes right down to the recesses of your motive. It deals with your thought pattern. It deals with the core of who you are. Because God is not simply interested in outward conformity. He's not simply trying to restrain actions while our heart is still wily and uh, uh, wild. But rather, God is desiring conformity to his will. He's desiring to see a reflection of his own character in his people. And so as we've been looking at the law of God, we've been highlighting certain principles about it. That the law it has a richness to, us, to it that helps us understand God's character. That it, it penetrates not just the outward, but it goes right down to the inward motives of our heart. That's something that Jesus really impressed upon uh, his hearers in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so as we're looking at the law of God, it is meant to search us. It is meant to expose us. It is meant to show us ourselves, our true selves, not just what is outwardly displayed for others, but what's going on deep within. But another principle about the law of God is, is that while many of the commandments are framed in the negative, every commandment can be looked at with a positive or a negative counterpart. The, the commandments, many of them are framed in the negative. You shall not do. Don't do this. Don't do that. And part of that is the design of the law, which is to restrain sin. It is to hold back sin. Uh, and so many of the commandments are framed in the negative. But every commandment we can look at, whether it's framed in the negative or in the positive, we can see it having both a positive and a negative uh, counterpart. So when the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day, it also implies that it's possible to break the Sabbath day. There are things that you should not do on the Sabbath or you would be breaking it. And on the flip side, when the Bible says, do not murder, it's not just saying something not to do, but there's a corresponding duty that is embedded in that principle. And why is it that Christians believe that every commandment has both a positive and a negative counterpart? It's because the scriptures teach that. The scriptures that teach us do not murder also tell us to love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says to the thief in the church, thieves to no longer steal. But he doesn't stop there. Paul says to the thief, no longer steal, but rather do honest labor. Work with your own hands so that you might have something to share with those who are in need. Instead of taking and depriving of your neighbor, you should be working and productive so that you can serve your neighbor. That's what the commandment is aspiring to. And so loving your neighbor goes much further than simply refraining or not doing certain things to them. Loving your neighbor is advancing to the enrichment of your neighbor. And so uh, this evening we're coming to a commandment that very easily we could 
look at this commandment and think to ourselves, well, at least I know I'm fulfilling one commandment. I know I got this one covered. I can check this one off. And what the scriptures are highlighting to us is that there's more to the law than simply the outward action. There's more to the law than just refraining from certain behaviors. The law is really penetrating down to what is going on in the thought patterns, what is going on in the heart desires, what is going on in terms of active actions in the way that we treat our neighbors. And so this evening we want to uh, see the, the richness of this law about how it calls us uh, to, to love our neighbor in very practical ways. And especially with regards to the, the sanctity of life. And because life is a gift of God, uh, we are to respect uh, God's lordship as it comes uh, to the lives of one of our neighbors. We want to think about this commandment in three thoughts. We want to think about the basis of this commandment. We want to think about the breaking of this commandment. How is it that this commandment is broken? And then finally, we want to think about the breakthrough of this commandment. Where's the hope in this commandment? Well, first, there is the basis uh, for this commandment. Very simply, in verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. The word there for murder uh, is always used in scripture to refer to the taking of human life. It is never used in scripture to refer to uh, the taking of lives of animals. And so this is not a passage that one should appeal to uh, for objecting to uh, killing animals uh, for food. Uh, this is used here in scripture to talk about uh, the taking of human life. And when we look in the scriptures, if we turn, for instance, to Numbers 35, we see that this is referring to both premeditated acts of murder, but also to acts of manslaughter, what we would call manslaughter today. It is, it is dealing with both the premeditated and also uh, the um, uh, momentary acts of taking another person's life. This is also uh, a commandment by way of introduction uh, that is not uh, to be used uh, as an objection even to acts of killing and warfare uh, or even about judicial executions. One may look at that question from all kinds of passages, but the law of God did give concession. There were times when, when one was justified to fight in war. Uh, and the law of God will go on to give explanation on that, or even on the judicial punishment of taking a life of a criminal. Again, the law of God did give sanction to those in certain conditions. What this is talking about is really on the private morality grounds of taking another person's life unlawfully, without judicial ground, as a personal act of vengeance. Uh, uh, that it's really zeroing in on. Now, we might look at this commandment, and maybe you're sitting here this evening thinking, this is really not that remarkable. Uh, this is something that basically everyone agrees to. We shouldn't murder anyone. Um, but we should slow down and not only give pause to the fact that we have come to a place where people agree that we shouldn't murder anyone, but also we should ask the question behind that. Because while the command might not strike you as that revolutionary, the logic is. There's a logic behind this that justifies this position. Because someone might sit here, and you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, don't we all agree to this? But why? 
Why is it wrong to take someone else's life? Why is it wrong to murder? Because there have been cultures that have argued it is right to take other people's lives. You see, we might sit here this evening and you might say to yourself, well, I think it is in the best interest of society if we don't take acts of vengeance out. I don't think it's in the best interest of society if uh, people go around murdering one another. I think it would be better for society if we had peace and people didn't act violently towards one another. But who decides, who determines what is the best interest of society? You see, there are societies that have said it is in the best interest of society to murder. There have been cultures that have argued it is in the best interest of our human flourishing to murder these people, to remove these people from human life. We would be better off if we did murder these. And so it does beg the question when someone says, I think it would be in the best interest if we don't, to say, on what basis? Ethics, what you believe about right and wrong, is connected to your beliefs. That we have to be able to explain why something is right, why something is better, and not just to say it would be better as I see it, or how it's popular today. Because cultures can change. People's moods can change. People can begin to think different thoughts. And so we need to say something deeper than just, I think human flourishing would be better if we don't murder. We need to be able to ground that in an explanation. And the scriptures do give us an explanation as to why it is wrong to murder someone else. One reason that the scriptures give to us is because life is a gift from God. That human life comes from the giver of life, the source of life itself. God gives life. And God is sovereign over life. And so we are to live in deference of that authority. We are to live recognizing God's lordship over something as sacred as life, the gift of life. God gives life and God takes life away. That's not something that we toy with. That's not something that we meddle in. That's something that we respect and we live under that fact. But Christians also respect this, not just because God is the giver of life, but because God imprints his image on every human being. That we believe, according to the scriptures, that all human beings are made in the image of God. That every human being has dignity because of their maker. That as we were singing there in Psalm 8, that God has created all things, and yet he has crowned humanity with glory and honor, that he has made them for a particular purpose, that they would have fellowship, that they would worship and know the living God. They are governors over his creation in a way that is distinct from the animals and the plants. They are to give glory to God as they relate with their maker uh, in fellowship and in relationship. In Genesis chapter 9, we are told, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shed, uh, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The reason why the taking of life was treated as so serious is because what that human life is, 
is an image bearer. He is imprinted with the glory of God. That, as Michael Horton says, he is one who has the distinct impression uh, of God's glory stamped upon him. Uh, he says, the image of God is stamped on each person as an artist signs his masterpieces. Maybe you've seen how some of those famous art, uh, musicians of the past, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, uh, George Handel, these people who would end their compositions with SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, that their work was meant to be an act of worship, of praising God that it was to give glory to God. What Horton is saying and what the scriptures are teaching is, is that each person is imprinted with that statement, to God be the glory. This one bears the image of God. And so there is a, a sacredness about human life because they are made by God, but also they are made for God. And the taking of life is not something that should be done lightheartedly. It's not something that should be done without deference to God's will. It is something that is to be done in submission uh, to the Lord and the giver of life itself. So this commandment might seem very straightforward. Many people, many cultures today would all agree this is what uh, will bring human flourishing. But we stop and we pause and we ask, but why do we come to this conclusion? And our view of humanity needs to be built on our understanding of who we are before God. If we lose that, then we lose something of a high view of humanity. And we'll begin to treat people according to our beliefs, wherever they lead us. But then secondly, this commandment is uh, something that is built on the bedrock of God's revelation. But this commandment is something that we see broken. Uh, in spite of uh, agreement, this commandment is still something that is broken, both in physical acts, as the Jewish rabbi would say, but also as the Christian would highlight even down to the recesses of the heart. We see it being broken in both. We live in a nation where medical, assisted, uh, medical assistance and death is now both legal but also socially accepted. In 2021, medical assistance in death accounted for 3.3% of deaths in Canada, and it's growing rapidly every year. It's not just there, it's growing, and our nation is becoming more and more of a spearheader in this whole movement, the taking of life. And the reason why many people end their life is because life's comforts have been taken away but also because we don't want to be a burden on other people. And when there is no more comfort in life, and when we sense that we are becoming a burden on others, what reason is there to continue to live? But the scriptures are teaching us that life is still to be honored, even at the end of life, even when death is proximate, that we can still honor God as Lord, and we can still come under his authority. When life's comforts have been removed, uh, God is still to be honored because life is sacred. And even in our pain, we are to entrust the end of our life to God's timing. That doesn't mean that Christians are trying to escape death, 
or to ignore the reality of death. But it does mean that we are to treat and submit to God's lordship in terms of time. Medical care should provide relief and it should also give us comfort even when death looms. So we see it in, uh, in how we deal with end-of-life matters, that there has to be a, a respect both of the dignity of human life but also of the lordship of God of respecting life itself. We also see it uh, with the issues of beginning of life. Again, we think of abortion. Uh, abortion is a very sensitive issue, uh, one that is very divisive, one that is very explosive, because it touches on our personal experience. We may have had an abortion. We may know someone who's had an abortion. We may have concerns wrapped up and associated with uh, abortion. <clears throat> but when we think about abortion, we need to think about it objectively as the scriptures teach. And when you look at how the church has responded for the last 2,000 years, the Christian church has always recognized the dignity of life is based on God who gives life from the womb. And it is to be respected and protected. Even in the second century, the Didache highlighted that the Christian's responsibility was to care for those who were neglected, those who were thrown out, those who were being exposed to the elements. The Christians highlighted the importance of caring for the uh, uh, unwanted uh, and uh, the young. Uh, but when we think about uh, this issue, uh, we are to see it again through the lens of being made as image bearers and uh, loving those who are in positions of need, as the Psalms were talking about. Scott Klusendorf uh, gives a very concise explanation of how we should think about the issue of abortion. He says, the science of embryology tells us that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. Philosophically, there is no relevant difference between you being the, uh, between the embryo you once were and the adult that you are today that justifies killing you at an earlier stage of development. And then listen to this. He says, differences of size, degree of dependence, environment, or degree of development are not justifying reasons to terminate life at one stage and not at another. Think about that. If we can be objective about what we're talking about with ending the unborn's life, we're talking about the degree of development, where they are, their environment, their degree of dependency, and their size. But they are living, they are personal, and they are human. The issue, if we can remove the emotions from it, is one that really calls us to question whether we honor the sanctity of life. That doesn't mean that these sins are unforgivable sins. Whether a person takes their own life or whether a person has removed an unwanted pregnancy. But it does mean that we are people that need God's mercy and that we are people that need to turn to God 
looking for that forgiveness because we are people that are living before the living God and we are accountable before him. But our, this commandment is not just dealing with outward actions. This is a commandment that shapes all of life and how we care for people uh, in their states of needs, not just at the early stages, but throughout their life. And it also uh, comes to play about uh, the motives of the heart. This commandment then has a far-reaching implication. If murder is wrong, then so are the inner attitudes that contain all the necessary ingredients that give way to murder. It pertains then to sinful anger. Jesus teaches, you have heard that it was said of old that you shall not murder and that those who murder will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus's point is, is that we all have to give account for every careless word. That our words can be destructive. That our words can be tearing each other apart. What we're saying to other human beings on social media is important. That it is still an attack if we are demeaning another human being. That we are accountable for how we treat others that are made in the image of God. And so all the necessary ingredients that it give expression to murder are there when someone is showing sinful anger to another person. And suddenly murder is not something thought of as the unthinkable sin that only a few have done. But we begin to see that Jesus is saying that sinful disposition of how we treat other image bearers resides in the lives of each of us. That when we hate, when we hold grudges against others, when we envy others, when we want to see the downfall of another person, when we diminish them and want to treat them as beneath us, we are not fulfilling the law. We are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus is pressing us to see the reality of our, our sinful disposition. Murder was one of the earliest signs, one of the earliest proofs of human twistedness. But after Adam and Eve fell into sin, we're told how Cain killed his brother. He murdered him. That was a sign that something has happened. Humans are against one another when they were meant to be in harmony, in community. Now they're destroying one another. And it shows us something of the problem of sin. The Apostle John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Is a murderer in his heart. And so as we think about this commandment, it's not something that we casually turn over and go to the next one to, but rather it is challenging us about how am I treating my neighbor? Am I holding grudges? Am I holding grudges against people in the church? Am I bitter and wanting to see someone broken down because they have had it better than I have? Do I envy other people? These are things that manifest themselves in our hearts. And so not only do we have to ask, do we see ourselves as sinners? But what do we do with that sin? When the law shows us something, in ourselves that we don't like. 
What do we do with it? Do we just hide it and say, never mind? Because no one sees it. God doesn't care. Or does it bring us to our knees and say, I have a problem? That I'm a sinner and that I need a savior? The law is clear about the intention. How we treat other people made in the image of God is important. So then what hope is there in this law? It's in the fact that one has come to fulfill it. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus came into this world to fulfill the law, all the law. But he fulfills this one as well. Because in a world that is set on being divided against itself, one in which we see destructive attitudes pitted against one itself, one where pride manifests itself and grudges are held, where division manifests itself. We see Jesus come into this world to conquer the hatred of this world. Jesus comes into this world and even when his enemies hate him and condemn him to the cross, even when he's being crucified and we see people that are mocking him at the cross, Jesus doesn't return in kind hatred for hatred, but he responds by showing pity and compassion. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That, that love conquers hatred. And Jesus does that to bring healing to a world that is sick with hatred. You know, we live in a world that actually talks a lot about love. But we strikingly don't see a lot of it. Because this world doesn't know what love is. Love is not simply affirmation. Love is doing good to the other. Love is showing compassion towards another. Love is showing patience with the shortcomings of another. Love is something that does not force itself upon another by using coercion or manipulation or force. Love seeks to build up another person at the sacrifice of oneself. It's willing to lower oneself in order to build up another. So in a world that talks a lot about love and where you don't see it, where do we go to to find that kind of love? And ultimately, you find it in Jesus. Jesus came into this world and shows compassion to sinners. Jesus deals patiently with sinners. Jesus builds them up. He doesn't coercively manipulate them, but he does what he does to build them up that all who believe in him will know grace, will be forgiven of their sins, and will have life. Jesus didn't come into this world to take life. He came into this world to give it. And this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so as you think about this law, you see how Jesus himself comes to fulfill it himself. He comes to give life in a world that is marked under the curse of sin. But more than that, Jesus sends his spirit into this world to transform hearts so that people would no longer be living according to their old sinful patterns. But those ways would be crucified and they would begin to be oriented by a new principle that they would begin to live uh, shaped by the love that has been shown to them. 
that they would no longer hold grudges, but they would be patient in bearing with one another's offenses, that they would bear witness to the truth in order to build others up, that they would be able to be lesser in order that others might be uh, um, uh, encouraged and strengthened. And as Colossians says, we would learn to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. So as we think about this commandment, are we people that realize where we sin? Are we people that are responding to our problem by looking to God, knowing that we can't hide our sin? Are we people who are thankful for the Lord Jesus, whose love conquers sin? And are we being shaped by that that love ourselves in response, pointing others to the gift of eternal life, seeking to build others up and live in a loving way in a world that is still bent on self, that talks about love, but hasn't yet found it. Jesus came into this world that we might have life. Have you found it by trusting in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about these commandments, we would see how they search us and our actions, but also our hearts. Lord, we confess that we would see our own shortcomings, but we pray, Lord, that we would see ultimately in Christ, the giver of life, the one who brings life to those who were dead in their sins. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit who causes those who were living as enemies of God to become those who delight in the love of God and who delight in the community that you are building. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.